This morning, as we continue our study through the book of Mark, we will be in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. So if you allow me to read for us, and we'll pray and get to the text. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and sat down and said to him, Epitha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is sovereign over all things. We thank you, Lord, that the deaf and the mute, uh, that the hearing and speaking, the young and the old, all stand under your gracious hand. We thank you, Father, that you not just reign over all things, but you are patient, you are kind and forbearance. You permit time to continue despite our rebellion. That you have prepared, you have proclaimed that there would come a time where you would redeem your people. I thank you, Father, that the time was fulfilled, that the time had come, uh, that Christ came and lived among man, that he was the walking presence of the kingdom of God, and in his presence, sin did not reign. I thank you, Father, that he died and paid the penalty for our sin. I thank you that he rose, declaring victory in our justification. And I thank you, Lord, that you endure in patience that as he has ascended and sits at the right hand of your throne, you long for people to repent. I pray, Father, you would give us endurance. I pray that you would give us faithfulness. I pray that you would give us patience and kindness and compassion, not just in public, not just to all people, Father, but privately to many that we would be faithful, consistent, as your son was faithful and consistent, that we would depend on him knowing we could never do so in our own strength. I pray you would give grace this morning that the preaching of your word would change the hearts of your people. I pray, Father, this morning we would not just hear a simple story, but by your spirit, that simple truth, simple recording of a simple work of your son, it is anything but simple for us. It would work in our hearts to change us, to transform us into the image of your Son. We thank you, Father, that we know you are faithful to do so because your Son faithfully died for sinners. Pray that you would show such grace this morning as you so faithfully do each and every day. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
This morning, we have a, a brief story of Christ's healing of a Gentile man. As you heard, as we read, that man was both deaf and had a speech impediment or struggled to speak in an understandable way, uh, most likely because of his deafness. Uh, if you know anyone who is deaf or hard of hearing, uh, if that has been from birth or early in life, it is often difficult because they cannot hear the words they're articulating for them to articulate words clearly, or what we would commonly call in the text calls a speech impediment. But this simple act of Christ is not just a lone act, just for the sake of the simple act. It is within the book of Mark as we are working our way through, and we see in the context of Mark, as we've looked at many times, uh, that Mark is the urgent message of the gospel of Christ. That Christ's message was that the time had been fulfilled, the prophecies had been made, and the Messiah was now present. The kingdom of God, being God's reign over all things, is at hand, fully present in Christ. That kingdom, which is not yet in the sense that Christ has not returned to reign over all things on earth, but is already in that Christ reigns through his people, that the Spirit lives in us, that kingdom, Christ says, is at hand, and therefore people must repent and believe the gospel. And as Christ proclaims that message, he also declares his power throughout his ministry. And he chooses to declare his power through compassion. It is not insignificant that Christ is both man and God, the creator of all things, as Colossians proclaims him, he is the highest of all beings. All things were made through him and for him and by him. He controls all things. And to display his power, when he came to earth, he humbly lived as a man and used the power of his divine nature to heal, to raise from the dead. He did not use his power to destroy, but in grace, he came with a message of repentance and showed his kindness and that his power was shown through resurrection and healing. And at no time in history, yes, there have been other healings. There's been other times where God has worked through the prophets and through the apostles and through the church. But in no time in history was there a time like that of the presence of Christ in healings, in resurrection, and in the removing of demons, the casting out of demons. In the context, we see that Christ is doing this work uh, throughout Israel, that the people of Israel might recognize that the Messiah has come. Isaiah 26, Isaiah 35, both speak that with the kingdom of God will come the ending of deafness and blindness and sickness. The signs of the kingdom, the signs of the Messiah, and what we know will forever be the presence of God is the removal of that. And so throughout Israel, Christ is making those signs clear. We also see that Christ comes for a specific, uh, specific mission. He did not come just to heal temporary ailments of earth. He came to pay the penalty for sin. And so we see as Christ is in Israel, fulfilling the prophecies, proclaiming, he also, as a man, takes time to retreat, 
And at this point, probably a year into his ministry, he's retreating into Gentile territory, not particularly to do signs there, but to train his disciples. And we've seen again and again, as he moves to Gentile territory, it says, he, what is he pursuing? He is pursuing rest for himself and his disciples. Is in these regions to train his men and also to find rest. And as he's doing so, in providence, his rest is regularly interrupted. Even as he is pursuing to disciple his men and to have rest, he's moved out of Israel that God's plan would be fulfilled in its appropriate timing. He again and again is coming to those who are Demon-possessed, as we saw in the demon-possessed man that gets off the boat and runs to him, and Jesus casts out that demon. And you remember then, Christ tells him, no, you cannot come with me. You must stay. And he went and preached where? In the Decapolis, this very region which Christ is passing by again now. We saw the woman just last week that comes to Christ asking for a demon to be cast out of her daughter. And he clearly states, my mission is for the children of God. I am here to fulfill the prophecies of Israel. And she humbly responds in his harsh words to her about who she really is, putting her faith in Christ. And we see similar here as Christ is traveling through these regions. He is not traveling through in the same way he travels through Israel. He is traveling, looking for rest, discipling his men, and continuing to show that wherever he is, is the presence of the kingdom of God. And so if you look with me at the text, the compassion of Christ on the cast out and on the crowds. We see a parallel passage we'll read together now in Matthew 15, 29 through 31, if you want to look at your handout. This is Matthew recording uh, the same time period. He does not, Mark is the only one that records this event in the healing of the man who is deaf and uh, his speech is impeded. But Matthew records the same time period because what follows and what precedes is exactly the same in Matthew and Mark. Matthew describes it without this particular healing. He says in verse 29 of Matthew 15, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up to the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered. And when they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. So in recording the same story, our questions are, what's the order of events happening? We know this is a long period of time. This is not a matter of days, right? Only being into chapter eight, we're into about a year of Christ's ministry. The gospel recorders are not recording everything that Christ did, but as John says, they are recording that you might know who Christ is. If we were to record everything he did, it would be endless volumes but they are choosing to record specific events. And so Matthew just generalizes that this, as Jesus is traveling through this region, this is happening. Crowds are coming to him, he's sitting down, he's teaching, he's healing, as we have seen Jesus do throughout his ministry. In Mark, particularly, we see that Jesus pulls this man aside privately, away from the crowd, to heal him. He avoids the crowd. And the question is, which came first, the crowd or the man who is deaf and speech impeded? 
we're used to these kinds of questions, right? Maybe you hear this one often. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? You can stop asking that question. The Bible makes it clear it was the chicken, right? God created him. The real question is, was the chicken created on the fifth day with the birds that fly or on the sixth day with the livestock that walks? That is a really good question. But that's not the question we're answering today because that belongs to God. But here we ask, what comes first? Is it the crowds that are coming to Jesus and Jesus privately removes this man to heal him in an intimate way? Or is it as Jesus is traveling through the crowds of these regions, he removes this man to not try to draw attention to himself because he's not here to heal. He's here to rest and to disciple his men. So he removes the man in order to not have a big crowd drawn in what he's doing, but show compassion to the man. Either way, whichever it is, if it's the crowd or the crippled man first, it is clear that Christ continues to function in providence, faithfully trusting God that as these situations are before him, he does what is faithful. As he plans and purposes, as a man, he still functions under the providence of God. And so when those who are calling out to him for healing, he does what is faithful. He heals. I would say if, if I was pressed, and this isn't something anyone ever pressed me on, but I felt pressed the last five days. So which is it? What's coming? I would say it is that Jesus heals this man. This man won't be quiet about it. Therefore, the crowds are drawn. Christ is already known in the region of the Decapolis, right? Because we know that the demon-possessed man has been proclaiming Christ to everyone. We know that people know who Christ is there. We also know Christ is trying to spend time there without drawing large crowds. He's trying to rest and disciple his men. And as he tells this man, we see at the end of the verse that he should be quiet and, and don't tell anyone. He's charging him not to. We know that the man all the more zealously makes it known, which would naturally then draw exactly what Matthew describes, crowds coming to Christ. And just as we saw the crowds coming to Christ when he was initially trying to get rest in chapter 6, we see what he does, right? The crowds are coming. The disciples, you remember, are hangry. They, they want to move on. They need to rest. And Jesus says he looked down on them as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. So rather than rest, he taught and healed. I would say in Providence, Christ here is doing his intention. He's telling the man, he sees the man, they bring him to them. Christ is going to heal him in an intimate way either way, but he's going to do so privately to not draw a crowd, maybe for the sake of the man, maybe also for the sake that he has an intentionality to why he's here. Whatever the circumstance in Providence, the crowds come. But he removes the man from the crowds. He avoids the crowds. The crowds come because the man and his friends declare the glory of God, or the crowds come and were already coming, but Christ separates him just to have compassion on him. And we see Christ's healing of this man is significant in that it declares there is not a mode in which Christ heals people, that Christ intentionally is healing individuals and he takes action 
for the sake of those individuals. We do not see every time that Christ heals a deaf person, he sticks his fingers in their ears, right? We do not see that every time Christ cast out a demon that he lays hands on him. Remember that the woman whose child had a demon, all he did was say, go, it's done. He reigns over all things. There is not a pragmatic formula. Christ doesn't have a 12-step plan to casting out demons or healing the deaf. He's not teaching people how to do this because if you take these steps, he is doing so by the power of God, not restricted by the kind of actions he takes. So why then, if he could do it just by speaking, does he choose to stick his fingers in the ears of a man, spit on his own hand, and put that spit on the man's tongue? Because Christ doesn't care about your COVID restrictions. Right? He's not keeping six foot of distance from him. He doesn't care about your personal ickiness of you don't like the idea of someone spitting and putting, does Jesus not know how disgusting that is? Why would he do so? See, it's healing the man for your sake that you would know the power and the compassion of Christ, but he is not concerned with how you feel about the way he went and did it. He's concerned with the man. He wants to communicate clearly to this man. He is clearly communicating to a man who cannot hear, a man who struggles to speak in an understandable way at all. And what does he do? He communicates to the man to make it clear to him what he's doing. As he has privately taken the man away, we see first he sticks his fingers in his ears. Why? So that the man knows what's coming. He, he is in communicating to the man who can't hear what he's about to do. So in compassion and touch and faithfulness to a man who is likely rejected by many. Because in the ancient world, the idea is if you're deaf, if you're mute, if you're crippled, if you have injury, if you have these things, it's because you're cursed by God. And so a man who is cast out is now brought close. Rather than Jesus to keep his distance and say, let him hear now, he gets intimately close to the very part of his body that people would cast him out for. And he says, it's going to heal you. He makes clear. He communicates. He does the same, as I've already said, in a way that might disturb you, but Christ is not concerned with your disturbance. He's concerned with the man. And so he spits on his fingers, and then he touches the man's tongue to communicate what he's going to do. He's going to loosen his tongue. He's going to make his tongue like Christ's tongue, free to speak, free to declare, free to proclaim, He also shows him what he's doing. Look at verse 34. After he has stuck his fingers in his ear, he has touched his tongue. He says, and looking to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epitha, that is, be opened. He looks to heaven. Why would he look to heaven? Well, as people and as language, where do we speak of God being? Though God is everywhere, we speak of God as being in the heavens. He is making clear to a man who cannot hear, who has been brought by others to be healed, where his healing is coming from. It is coming from God. He looks to heaven. It's significant that he mentions the verbal, or rather nonverbal communication of this. 
He doesn't just pray by the power of God from heaven or the God of Israel because the man cannot hear Christ as the man is looking at him, looks to heaven to communicate that this is by the power of God. He sighs, a visible sigh. You, you understand what a sigh is, right? Lauren does this to me frequently. She goes, what's wrong? Nothing. Then why are you sighing? Right? Because I'll walk in the kitchen and go, what's wrong? Nothing. I'm fine. No, you're not. Because she knows. And just as she knows, and just as you know, a sigh is a nonverbal, though we could hear it, just the action, the function, is a nonverbal communicator of weight and compassion and the weight of what he is going to do and the, the reality of what this man has gone through. Christ takes extreme effort to communicate to this man what he is going to do, by what power he is going to do it, and the compassion in which he will do so. And it seems this man doesn't understand who Christ is. He might. Uh, and he might just be immature in doing so. All of us who understand who Christ is hear many things Christ tells us, and we neglect to do them immaturely. But Christ is very clear once this man's ears are opened, right? He says, he charges them, tell no one. But it says, the more in which he charged them, what did they do? The more zealously they told everyone. The, the grace and compassion, I just had a momentary thought as I was reading this this week, the grace and compassion of Christ to continue his work. How many times were your children there and you say, stop that, be quiet, and the more you say it, the more they just want to do it. Their hearts and zeal just, nope, that's what I'm going to do. And if you're honest, it's not a five-year-old heart that does that, it's a sinful heart. How many of you when you are told, this is what you are not to do, all of a sudden you want to do it with all the zeal and power you have. <coughs> and Christ in grace and compassion does not bring down the hammer on them. What does he do? He continues to charge them, don't do that. And despite the reality of what they do, the crowds come. And I would say we see then Matthew 15, as, he, as Matthew describes it in his remembrance of it, the crowds are coming in mass now. And Christ is sitting down to heal them. He is having grace upon them, teaching them and declaring. And despite what maybe Christ did not desire to happen in the crowds coming, but he trusts the providence of God and proclaims, and in the providence of God, what goes on? Just as these men are declaring, he has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They are proclaiming what Isaiah proclaimed would come with the Messiah, will be in the kingdom of God. And the Gentiles who do not know God are proclaiming, this man does all things well, he makes the deaf hear and the mute speak because we just saw it happen 
And the crowds recorded in Matthew proclaim what? So the crowd wondered, Matthew 15, verse 31. The crowd wondered or was amazed. They marveled when they saw the mute speaking and the cripple healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And what did they do? Matthew 15, verse 31. And they glorified the God of Israel. These crowds knew who was doing this work. They were aware. This deaf and mute man might not have known he's brought by his friends to a man who can heal him. How much they were able to communicate to him of what's going on, how much he was able to understand, we don't know. But in Matthew, it is very clear the effect of what happens. As the crowds come, they don't just declare he, this man, has done all things well and makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They declare, look at what this man is doing by the power of the God of Israel. The pagans, the Gentiles, as Jesus describes, the Seraphonicians or the Canaanites who don't know him, who are no better than dogs before God who should not know, who are far off, who have not heard the truth, see what he is doing and know he is doing so. How? By the power of the God of Israel. And they are not proclaiming their gods. They're declaring the power of this man and the God of Israel. At the same time, remembering context, the men who are supposed to be the mouthpieces for the God of Israel. The men who are to teach the truth. The men who Jesus says sit on the seat of Moses live as hypocrites in Israel. They argue with Christ about hand washing and Sabbath days. And they neglect to recognize and to remember Isaiah's declaration that he would heal the blind and they would see, that he would raise the lame and they would walk, that he would open the ears of the deaf and the tongues of the mute, that he would raise the dead. And as those signs are going on around them, not in rumor, not in third party, not in one time I heard of a guy that did this. Everywhere Jesus goes, this is happening. This is not like modern faith healers that have a bag of tricks. This is the kingdom of God before people. This is the God that works by the power of God and proclaims and does what he does in a way that is not deniable. And the Gentiles can't even deny it. But the Pharisees in their hypocrisy refuse to see it. Those who know the God of Israel will not declare it. And those who know nothing of the God of Israel can't but declare it. He made it known. His works of de compassion declare his undeniable power from God. He fulfills that which he said he would. And these should have been a clear sign to the people of God, particularly to the scribes and the Pharisees, those responsible for holding the scrolls of Isaiah. And yet they ignored 
if you, if you question that are these the signs of the Messiah, should this have been what made known that he was the Christ? As Daniel referenced in your handout, Luke 7, 18 through 23, we see as John the Baptist, as we looked at just a chapter ago, is imprisoned by Herod, and God is preparing uh, the way through John the Baptist, and Herod doesn't like it because the way that things are prepared is repent and believe the gospel. And Herod is a man of immense sexual immorality, political immorality, heinous sin all around. His family is wrapped up in the same kind of political, immoral sin. And he imprisons John, if you remember, and you could just read a few chapters back. And as John is in prison, Luke tells us, John writes to, or sends rather, his disciples to go to Jesus saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? As Daniel referenced, John is in prison, and in prison he's questioning. What do I do here? Remember, John has already declared the truth. As John baptizes Jesus, and Jesus declares all righteousness, John says, I must increase, and he must decrease. This is the Lamb of God, which is written of by the prophets. John knew the truth, but in fear and imprisonment, he wanted the truth affirmed. He wanted to know I'm not here locked up after all my years of camel wearing and honey cricket eating. I'm not here dying in Herod's pagan immoral prison. If this is not the one. And so he sends the disciples. And what does Christ say to John the Baptist? Verse 21, as John's disciples come, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does Jesus tell John? He tells him the prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled in my presence. Isaiah has proclaimed. He tells the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is here and it is clear from his teaching, from what he has said, and from the signs in which he does. And it is enough for John. John knows, John has read, John has heard, and John, unlike the Pharisees, does not raise up in hypocrisy, offended by the works of Christ, but dies under the hands of a pagan to raise again in glory with the Messiah. The miracles of Christ, not just fancy tricks to gather a crowd, they were acts of compassion to display his power. It was to make known that Christ on the earth at that time was not just another time of God working. It was a significant time, unlike any other time prior or any time that will come again. 
It was not to declare this is the way things will always be on earth now. It was to declare there is one on earth now who earth does not understand or know. One who reigns over sin and death. One who will die to justify his people. Christ did not come to usher in the temporary healing of people and diseases and muteness and deafness. He came to die that one day all deafness would end, all muteness would cease, all diseases would be over, all tears, all weeping, all sin, all rebellion crushed under the foot of the king. That he would reign, and his reign was made known in his presence in such a way that even historians cannot deny there has been no time in history like the coming of Christ. No time where the world has been turned so upside down than the coming of Christ. No time that has altered the course of history like the coming of Christ. Because he was and is and always will be the Messiah the God of his people, the one whom all things were created through and for, the one who will forever be declared. And in that power, that greatness, that magnitude, he humbles himself to become a man, to live among people, and to remove himself from the crowd, to heal just one man, who has been outcast, and does so to intimately communicate his love to him and the power by which he does so. How incredible that Christ, who reigns over all things, would also intimately love just one person, just a single human on earth. He doesn't brush by and push by. He's not too busy. Just in the moment, I think, you know, I was 15 minutes late from when I usually get here. And as I'm walking in, people are like, hey, Jake, hey, Jake. And I'm like, hey, yep, hey, moving on. I got, I got to make sure all this is happening. I wanted to be here 15 minutes ago. This isn't going the way I planned. I'm not publicly repenting. I don't know if I would do anything different next week. I did have responsibilities I need to get to, and I'm not Jesus. I can't take you aside and heal you. I don't have the kind of clarity of, of what I need to do in the way that Jesus did. But how much more so with that clarity, the love and compassion of the Messiah taking this man aside and healing him, caring for him. Praise God that he is God and not just man and that he loves you in the very same way. He is not limited by time and power and, and earth. He loves all people and desires that all would come to repentance. He is not restrained in power that he's trying to accomplish administrative things and doesn't have time for relational things because he can't do both at the same time. As Daniel prayed and that God is functioning in the churches all across the world in the care for the people all across the world. 
He was not occupied this morning. I've got to be there. Chuck's going to be a deacon. I don't got time for those other churches. I got to really fix Chuck. That's a big job. No. He can mightily work in the lives of his individual people, fulfilling his plan for the whole church, working all things for his kingdom and glory. He is not restrained in power. And in that power, he individually loves and cares for each. That means in his love and care for each, there is not someone who has been left outside the love of God. Not someone who is cursed in circumstance to be shown that they are not loved by God or do not have the grace of God. In the ancient world, it was easy for this man and those who are handicapped or crippled, disabled, to be cast out as those who are being punished for their sin or the sins of their parents. We see in the Gospels before Jesus heals another blind man, even the disciples asked, whose sin caused this? His or the sins of his parents. And Jesus says, this is not because of sin. This is for the glory of God. See, the fact is, sin reigns on earth in causing all suffering, causing all rebellion, causing all disability, causing all pain, all suffering, all death is caused by sin. But there is not always a correlation between your personal sin and the personal circumstances of your life because of sin. It is not always that you suffer because you did some action that made it that suffering. And that's what we commonly think. We think this bad thing is happening to me. Why? Because I did something and now God is punishing me. It is the natural recourse of men to assume that if bad things are happening to me, it's because I have not honored God. It could be that your sin has consequences that are causing suffering in your life. But it is not always true that the sin, the, the sin reigning consequences in life are because of your personal sin. Children born with disabilities are not born so because they're cursed by God. They're born so for the glory of God. If all suffering was a result of personal sin, Christ's suffering is void. Christ never sinned. And he suffered more than any man. And he did not just suffer on the cross. He suffered humbled in the body of a man with rest. He was tired. He was hungry. He was injured. He was pained. He was probably sick. Why? Because of his sin? No. Because he is living in a creation that is under the dominion of sin. And he willingly came to suffer under a creation of sin that he might redeem that creation to remove all sin. All suffering in your life is not an immediate result of your sin. Much of the suffering of life is just part of living in a sinful world. And the God who reigns over all things, Peter says, is able 
in the same hand of suffering to preserve the righteous and to punish the wicked. So, when Moses has a speech impediment and he cries out to God, I can't go be your mouthpiece because I can't speak well. What does God say? Well, if you wouldn't have punched your sibling on the 14th of whatever, that wouldn't have happened. No. He doesn't say, if your parents wouldn't have been unfaithful, you wouldn't have had that. No, he doesn't equate even the disabilities of man to their sinful action, but to his reign and glory over all things, despite sin, to show that he is the conqueror of all sin. He tells Moses, Exodus 4, 11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made the man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And he comforts Moses. I was not unaware of this, and I have a plan and a purpose. We see in the law of Leviticus and repeated in Deuteronomy that God has compassion on the deaf and the mute, the disabled. God does not cry out, they are cursed. He actually cries, let there be justice, for if you shall curse a deaf person or put a stumbling block before the blind, you don't fear God. If you should look at that as they are cursed, or you do anything to say that that is a curse to them or to harm them because of that, you lack the fear of God. And he is the Lord. He has done it. He says, curse anyone in Deuteronomy who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people shall say, amen. That God in his justice cares for the disabled. He cares in that as he reigns over the world, though it is sinful, and sin often shows itself in these ways, it is not outside of his power. And it's not impossible for him to use it for his glory. I think it's not the primary point of the text, but it is a necessary understanding for us as people. So often in history, people have been confused. I think disabilities are a judgment by God personally. Rather than a declaration by God over all creation, things are not as they ought to be. But we know that that God is not stopped by the way things ought not to be. He is patient and enduring with sin and our sinfulness and our rebellion and will one day create a kingdom and judge the world and remove sin and death and wickedness. I want to encourage you this week to take time to read Revelation 21, 1 through 4. You can read the whole book. It's very, very enlightening and entertaining and confusing. But if you take the time to read and you get to Revelation 21, you will see, as all Christians believe, though they debate much about end times, that all Christians believe there will come a time where Christ is finished with all his work, his patience has ceased, he has judged the world, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth where his people dwell forever. And in that new heavens and new earth, there will no longer be mourning or crying or pain, because all the former things of sin have passed away. We rejoice that the presence of Christ on earth made known who he is. We rejoice that the presence of Christ in us, we know, can defeat the power of sin in our own lives. We can 
put sin to death and live for his righteousness. We rejoice even as we see a sinful world around us. It is not because his hand is unable in power, but because his hand is patient in grace. And we can long for the time where the presence of Christ is not bound just in the body of a man on earth, but the reign of Christ and the presence of Christ reigns over all the earth and sin shall be no more. Praise God that he is so good and so gracious to do so, not just in a broad sharing of his plan, but personally and privately for each of his people that we might rest our hope in him. Let's pray that God would reign so faithfully in us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you, Lord, that we are not bound by the restraints of sin as though you had no power. I thank you, Father, that uh, though sin reigns in part, you reign over all. Thank you, Father, that you have defeated sin and you will one day declare your reign as it is now, not just to be known, but to be seen throughout all the earth. We pray, Father, that you would now reign in the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those who zealously declare what you have done. I pray, Father, you would comfort us as there is suffering in our life, that we would root out any wicked way in us, but we would also trust that you faithfully work despite the suffering of earth. I pray you would give us such grace, not for our sakes alone, but for your glory, for the praise of your name, that all the world might know the God of Israel reigns. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.